Well, good morning, Grace. Hey, boy, it is good to be here, right? I mean, it is good to be here and now. What a week. Um, never going camping again. Uh, I wanted to tell you, before we go on to our moving, our, our learning time together, I wanted to tell you about uh, how our church has been able to respond to the blizzard and the, the boy, the, uh, the kind of the disaster that hit Austin especially. So um, I'm so proud of this church and how uh, we've been able to help. So let me just give you some things that you might not know otherwise. I talked to one of our members, Dan Berger, uh, this week. He's, uh, let me get his title right, he's the division manager of uh, the Community Risk Reduction Division of Travis County. So look, here it is, Community Risk Reduction Division of Travis County. And so they are trying to minimize the amount of risk that we go through in day-to-day, but also during uh, disasters. And so he's, he's kind of overseeing that. And so I asked him, what was life like? And he said, it, it was insane what what happened on that level was all the critical systems, many of the critical systems that are needed to keep a city healthy, they crashed. They just broke. Like, for example, the 311 number wasn't working. So many, if not most, all of the calls were going to 911. And the dispatchers could not handle that many calls. And people were panicked and they were feeling a sense of frustration because they weren't talking to some people or being put on hold. And, and people, by the way, the people that were calling 911 were from all over the country because they, people from Pennsylvania and New Jersey were calling and saying, listen, I haven't heard from my son in two days. He's got a wife and three kids. Last we heard, no power. They were freezing. You need to go there and check on them now. One of the problems is, is the actual 911 system, the first responders are in charge of doing thing, a very limited amount of things they can do. They can take people to the hospital. They can, you know, go to crashes and, and protect that while they clean it up, and they can put out fires. But their job is not to make, sh- to do a health check on someone that might be sick or freezing. They, they can't do that. So in, in their big uh, briefing room, and we were like, what can we do? How can we do this? So one of the men in leadership says, like, there's this group, I don't know, they're Austin Disaster Group or something. And Dan Berger said, wait a minute. He'd, he'd been serving uh, as a firefighter for 20 years, at least 20 years, and arson investigation as well. And while doing arson investigation, he had done work with Austin Disaster Relief Network, ADRN. He says, are you talking about ADRN, Austin Disaster Relief Network? He goes, yeah, yeah sure. He goes, oh, I know about those guys. I, I, they used, we used them multiple times when the houses were burned down. We handed over the people to ADRN, and they just took care of them and never got a thing back. They, we, I think that's what we ought to do. So the leadership said, let's push as much as we can to ADRN, Austin Disaster Relief Network. Let me tell you about them. They started nine, in 2009 when we had a previous disaster, one of the hurricanes, and Austin was ill-prepared to take on the many people that were coming from New Orleans, and, and we couldn't help. We, we weren't equipped to, and they didn't want us to. Well, the capital C church, all of the churches in Austin that wanted to participate said, let's get trained, let's learn the vocabulary, let's be prepared for the next disaster. And it's been running great since then. Not only did we help start them, they were using our facilities. They were officed in our facilities for over five years until they outgrew it. And as a matter of fact, last year, this church gave almost $64,000 over the last 12 months. So that's you guys just generous giving, and now they could use the money that we gave them. ADRN 
took on the call from the, um, the county that was needed, and they said, Here's, here, and the county people required them to give a loop back, like, what's going on? Did they call you? Did ADRN help you? And here's what, they, here's what they heard. They said, ADRN was awesome. I actually talked to a person in person. That was huge. They were able to calm me down. I needed water and food. One person said they needed uh, medicine delivered, and they delivered it. What happened was ADRN, they realized we needed it. They, they set up warming centers around the city. The city only had one or two, and you had to drive to get there. So they used the ADRN used the churches that had uh, utilities still working, heating and air conditioning and heating and water, and made those warming stations. Not only that, they deployed anyone with four-wheel drive vehicles to go and get people and move them to a house that they would want to go to, or move them to one of the warming centers, or deliver food or water or medicine. They did all that. Some of you were participating in that and enjoying the privilege of playing in the snow in your four-wheel drive cars. So. All that's going on. The word that was used from the senior leadership of ADRN's participation, outstanding, outstanding. So we got to play a part in that. That's how we played a role in our giving and in our participation. I wanted to also let you know just now as we've gone from response to recovery, and now we're going to start seeing when the when the snow thaws and the pipes are, we're going to find out if they're bursting. We're going to have a lot of effort, other needs. If you have a need, go directly to the ADRN website. If you would like to help in other people's needs, because you could help clean out a house or fix a pipe or something like that, go directly to ADRN. They could use the help, and that's where you can get help. Awesome ministry, and we're, we're right there with them. Second thing we did is uh, somebody on our staff was watching the news and found out that the... In, in the city division, Austin Police Department, Austin EMS, and the dispatchers went to work and couldn't leave. They were stuck. They couldn't get home. And so they, some of them were sleeping uh, in cots. Uh, as a matter of fact, Dan, when, when he was at, at his place, he couldn't leave. He was sleeping on a cot. He's 6'4". His blanket was his bath towel. I would pay money to see him trying to get that bath towel covering that with his feet hanging over the cot. They didn't order enough cots from the previous disaster that we had here in Austin, and so they ran out of cots. So some of the people were sleeping on the floor. They, didn't, they couldn't go home. So some of them said, well, let's just get some hotel rooms near our precincts, and we'll just spend the night there. And they were told, well, if you do, you're going to have to pay for it. And then one of the police organizations came in and said, look, if you're one of the dispatchers, EMS, or police, we'll figure out a way to get it paid. And so they did, and they saved the receipts, and they had a bill of $28,000. Now they're trying to pay it off. Well, when I called the police information officer that we have a relationship with, he sent me to the person that has those receipts that's trying to raise that money. And Grace Covenant Church said, we'll pay some of those. We'll pay $10,000. So we're writing them a check for $10,000. It was a great phone call for me because he said, you just made a policeman cry. And I said, well, it's about time the shoes on the other foot on that one. You even made me cry a few times. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's actually true. Uh, and then uh, what about the homeless that are up living, you know, up and down on the streets of 183 in northwest Austin? How do we help them in temperatures that, are, that can kill you, frankly? Well, we, uh, Ray Anderson's involved uh, in a ministry group with other executive pastors in town, and a like-minded church up the road, Mosaic, has a ministry to the homeless and they 
set up a situation where they could house some of these men and women and keep them warm and feed them and give them water. So we gave towards that organization and we're gave, giving them $5,000. So we have a lot of money that we were able to give away, $64,000 and $10,000 and $5,000. So you guys give yourselves a hand because we're expressing our generosity to our city. And then also just you guys doing the ministry. I have heard so many wonderful stories about how you guys have seen it. You had the vision, every believer's a minister and caring for the neighbors on, you know, in your neighborhood and the people that you've made, had relationships with, you know, the COVID crazy has allowed us to maybe connect in ways that we haven't over maybe 20 or 30 years. And now we know those names and we can care for them in this, in this frostbite experience. So again, great job, Grace. So proud to be part of such a great church. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Um, last week, one of our applications was pray like a four-year-old and we're gonna pray like a four-year-old. We're gonna appreciate things we, meet, we might've taken for, uh, for granted eight days ago, right? Let's pray. Uh, dear God, Heavenly Father, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, we are grateful. And we haven't said that we are grateful for electricity and the line workers that make that happen for plumbing and the city workers that are making water come to our houses. We're grateful for that. We, we love living in a modern society, but we don't thank you for that. We are grateful. Lord, I'd ask that you'd bless the families of those men and women and give them grace, give them rest, bring us back to a sense of normalcy in, that, in, the, in those ways. Lord, we're grateful for friends. We're grateful for the church. We're grateful for grace. We praise you for a church like Grace and the capital C church, the whole the church of Austin and how we're able to share your love that you uh, allowed this, this uh, blizzard to come in so that the church could be asked to do something that we weren't able to even get into meeting with before and now they're calling us and they're blessed by it. So Lord, I'd ask that the church would continue to show love and bring the gospel message to the people whose ears you have opened. God bless our time together. Let's, I'd ask that you'd help us open our eyes so that we might seize this moment. We praise you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at our passage today. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter six and seven. And much of life, much of life is the, is the wisdom of God that is, it's difficult to grasp. Much of life is a mystery, and it's to be enjoyed. That's the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes itself, and this passage particularly. Let me start with just a, a, a parable, a Chinese parable uh, that you might have heard before, but it, it goes like this. It's about a man with wisdom that sees things for maybe the way they are. The story goes like this. A young man... Uh, a young man who had a horse got away and the horse ran and crossed the borderline into the area where the nomads were living. And people in that little village they lived in, they lived in a village in the frontiers of China. And the people in the village went, circled around the young man, the teenager, and consoled him because he had lost his horse. But his wise old father said, why do you think that's a cursing? Maybe it's a blessing. It could be a good thing. Well, months later, the horse returned with a majestic stallion. And people said, good for you. This is a blessing from God, I'll bet. And the wise old man says, I don't know. Who's to know for sure? It actually could be a curse. Well, they were able to make money. They were breeding with the, 
with that stallion and things were going well. It also happened to be the favorite horse the teenager, the teenage boy liked to, to ride. And one night when he was riding, he was thrown from that stallion and he broke his hip, maimed for life. People circled around and consoled the young man in his youth that he lost his strength. And, and a wise old father said, why do you say that's a curse? Maybe that too could be a blessing. A year later, the nomads crossed the border and came into the village because they were at war and they stole up, they took up every able-bodied man to come and fight for them. By the time the war was over, nine of the 10 men that were taken were killed in battle, but not that teenage boy or the father because he was maimed by being thrown from that stallion and he got when his horse ran away. And so the teenager lived a long life and was able to care for his old father. And the theme of the story is what appears to be a blessing could be a curse and what appears to be a curse could actually be a blessing. That's what's happening today in our storyline in the book of Ecclesiastes. St. Augustine said, if you understand God, it's not God that you understand. And applied to this, you know, in, in the, the context that we're looking at in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, if you understand God's plan, then it's not God's plan that you understand. That's the theme. It's written by the wisest man in Old Testament times, and he says this, life is a mystery, and the mystery is just to be enjoyed. The preface of the book, he starts off by saying, meaningless, meaningless, all is vanity. And he's not saying life isn't worth living. No, no, no. What he's saying is, is life is a puzzle and you're not going to be able to put it together. There, there's a key to life that unlocks all understanding of how it all fits together, but God holds the key and he's not giving it up. That's his point. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, he explains the purpose, not just of the book, but the purpose of life, kind of the nature of man. Let me read it for you. Chapter 3, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything is beautiful in its time. But God has also set eternity in their hearts, and yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. There's this incomparable beautiful plan where every single thing has its purpose in its time, but man cannot make sense out of it. We're not like the animals. We have a long view of our history and we can see what in the past makes sense in the present and then we project into our future and we think we can know how things will work out. And we, this, there's this, this hunger lust in our souls being it, the, the it's eternity in our hearts. That's that hunger lust to know how it all fits together. And yet, and yet, God's not going to let us know. And so what happens is we look around us and we see the atrocities that are taking place in life. And we say, is there a beautiful plan? It does not appear to be a beautiful plan. It doesn't look like anyone's in, in charge to me. And so Solomon's lot is this. Just enjoy your lot. Just surrender and take it. Don't hate it. Don't complain about it. Don't argue with God about it. Just enjoy Yahweh, the one who designed it. And like graphically, could I put it this way so you can see this? Like here, is all, here are all the things that matter. Here, here's the things that I can control. This is what I'm supposed to focus on right here. Just a little red part. That in Ecclesiastes is called 
your lot. Play hard, right? Live your life into exhaustion because no one's going to get through this alive. You'll be dead soon and forgotten. So enjoy. Enjoy all of it. That's what he's trying to say. And today, when we're looking at chapters 6 and 7, Solomon's going to apply this value and this application to a couple, two different uh, conundrums that we face and, and how it can be reconciled if God is actually in charge. And it, and it has to do with, you know, why, why do bad things happen to good people, it seems like, and why do good things seem to happen to the wrong people? Why do good things happen to the wrong people, and why do bad things happen to the wrong people? And in chapter 6, he's going to start by saying, well, you know, maybe not all good things are good. <laughs> Almost like our Chinese parable, right? Not all good things are good. Not all glitter is gold. It, there may be some things that are good are actually not good at all. And then in his answer to the question, why do bad things happen to the wrong people? He's going to say, well, maybe not all bad things are bad. Maybe bad things can actually be good. Who are we to say? That's what it comes down to. So here's Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Why do good things seem to happen to the wrong people? Okay? And, and here's, here's, what he's gonna, here's his point he's going to make. Happy things cannot make a happy person. Okay. Happy things don't make a happy person. You have to enjoy the gift giver to enjoy the gift. That's the big idea here. Look what it says in chapter 6, 1 and 2. I've seen, I've seen another evil under the sun that weighs heavily on all of mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honors so that they lack nothing in, in their heart's desires, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless. It's a, it's a grievous evil to him. You've been envious of someone else's wealth and honor. You think, man, they get all the easy stuff. How come the wrong people get that? And Ecclesiastes is saying that honor and that prosperity, that can't give you meaning or purpose or joy. Those are soul things. If you don't enjoy the giver, you cannot enjoy the gift. And Solomon's saying, look, 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 you just take it from me. <laughs> His income, if you look at it, you know, mathematically and all that, he's making about over a million dollars a day. And he's saying a million dollars a day, I was king of a powerful Middle East country, and I did not enjoy the giver in a season of my life. And I was miserable, miserable. Gifts don't make people happy. I, my, our family friend is part of a, a national, actually an international resort uh, community, okay? And she, she takes care of, she's hired by uh, the resort and at some of the resorts, their family resorts, and they have different types of hotels, right? Different like pay scales. There's some three-star, four-star. There's a five-star hotel, $1,000 a night kind of place. And she said that if you're working the five-star hotel, that's where the most security is. And you're thinking, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's where the valuables are. Just the watches alone need extra security. Like, no, oh, I'm sorry. That's not why. The very expensive hotel needs the most security because they have the most calls in the middle of the night for domestic abuse and domestic violence. Because things, <laughs> you can have a full belly and your soul is dying of starvation. 
It doesn't help if you don't know the maker. So why all, why does it seem like the wrong people get all the good stuff? It's not always the good stuff. Happy, pe- happy things don't make people happy. You have to enjoy the giver first. I mean, some of you know, like stories of, of a small child that loves her parents. She's grateful towards them and respects them. She has one toy to her name, right? And, and she names the toys. She hums. She skips. She sings the toy songs. Couldn't be any happier, right? And then the family next door, a child, has rooms full of toys and just picks one up, throws it down. What's next? Is that all? If you don't love the giver, it's really hard to enjoy the gift. Otherwise, you start feeling like entitled or something. All things, all physical things suffer from what's called the law of diminishing returns. That means the more you do it, the more you have it, the more you experience it, the less joy you get out of that because they're temporal things. And so all they can give you is happiness or is pleasure, not happiness. Stuff gives you pleasure. Stuff can't give you happiness. And so that was the thesis of Solomon's point. And now, like true to his style, this is the style that he writes throughout most, a lot of Ecclesiastes. He gives us a principle and then he gives us exaggerated examples to prove the point. This time he's going to go, look, let's just go crazy with these blessings we're talking about. And I'll show you the, I'll show you what I mean. So three through six says, look, a man could have a hundred children and live many years, and yet no matter how long he lives, uh, he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial. I say a stillborn child is better off than he. Six, he just, he turns it up to 11. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. See, do, do not all go to the same place. Solomon's saying, look, it's not about the number of years or the number of blessings, right? I'll give you 2,000 years. I'll give you 100 kids. Run up everything that your hearts desire. He's going to say, it doesn't matter. It'd be better that you died on your birthday. It better be stillborn. Because when you're stillborn, it's like uh, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't have lived the experience of what's called destination sickness. Destination sickness is, is a lot of us are pursuing stuff, and it's the pursuit that keeps us running. You know, it's, it's like we're going to get there someday. Destination sickness is for the few people that actually arrive there in the corner office or the house on the hill or whatever it might be, and they actually get there and go, uh-oh, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't fulfill and Solomon's saying, look, if I gave you 2,000 years and 200 ki- or 100 children, you would have to know that every destination was a dead end, no work, only gave pleasure, never happiness. He would have to live with the T-shirt. You guys know the figure speech? Um, uh, been there, done that, right? He's got a T-shirt that says, been everywhere, done everything. And on the back, it still says, I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, just like, let's ponder for a moment. Who wrote, I can't get no satisfaction? The guy that had been everywhere and done everything. So he says, look, it's not the number of friends. It's not the number of years. You got to enjoy the giver if you can enjoy the gift. And that's why Paul is able to write. Look how he, when Paul writes about contentment, look how he says, I have learned, learned the secret. It's not obvious. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance, 
and suffering need, I can do all things through Christ. Paul has rearranged his life around Christ, and now whatever lot he's experiencing, he's fine. He's good. Solomon now is going to answer the question, how do we live in a world that does not seem fair? How, does, how are we supposed to live where it seems like the wrong people are getting the good stuff? Here's what he says, 10 through 12, chapter 6. Whatever exists has already been named. Uh, and what humanity is, it's already been known. No one can contend, look, no one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? Who knows? Like, who really knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days that he passes through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Now he's calling out the beautiful plan. He's saying, we got this beautiful plan, but he says, it's set. Right? It's, it's already been named, he says. It's uh, check the box, he's done. It's in the can. It's already going to happen. So, so he says, okay, look, you don't know what it is. You can't negotiate it. You can't make sense out of it. So why are you arguing about it? The more words, the less meaning. Yappity, yappity, yap. Look like you're a critique on why this thing ought to be going differently. You're just, you're going to wear God down? Really? And that's why he starts talking about, you better be careful about you defining that what is good and what is not good. It says in verse 2, or 12, it says, who knows what is good for a person? Who knows what is good for a person? <laughs> you, you, live, you, live the, you live the lot you get dealt, not, the, not, not the, the hand that you wanted, not the hand that you feel like you deserve. You just play the hand you got. Because you can see here he's saying, oh, you little man. The guy he's kind of making, you know, he's putting man in his place. He, goes, he says, uh, you cannot contend with someone stronger. I would say, you're fighting way out of your weight class here, bro. <laughs> I mean, you better be careful about who you're arguing with. You're, you're passing through like a shadow. Romans 9 says, who are you, O oh man, to argue with God? Does the pot say to the, to the potter, I don't like the way you're making things? He's talking about how everyone goes, at the very end of that verse, it says, we're, we're all going there, right? What will happen under the sun when they're gone? Here's how it looks. In a very short period of time, you'll be put into an incinerator, housed in a vase about that big. Then your family, your relatives, will pass that urn around, awkwardly not knowing what to do with that. And then it's just going to go missing. <laughs> no one's going to know who did it. And no one's going to ask why. It's just kind of thing. And that's the nature of man. Dirt, dust, in an urn. And, he, and, and in this passage, he's saying, are you sure you want to argue with God about what is fair? No, no, you don't. Why, do, why does prosperity seem to go with the wrong people and power? How are you supposed to live with that? He's saying here, it's, it sounds trite, but it's actually true. Here's what he's saying. You got to live by faith. And what is faith? What is the faith in? You, uh, here's a couple of bumper stickers right, that are true, okay? You don't know what tomorrow holds, but you know who holds tomorrow. That's faith. It's in the person, the character of God. Or put another way, especially in the context of what we're learning right now, 
Here's what you, you don't let what you don't know about God, right, destroy what you do know about God and his plan, okay? You, you don't let what you don't know about what God is doing in your life supersede what you do know God is doing in your life. What is he doing in your life? He's predetermined that you're going to become like Christ in all of life. You know that to be true. Don't let what you don't know about what God's doing in your life to uh, pull rank on what you do know. Here's what you do know about the nature of God, right? The nature of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that people would have eternal life. So you know that about the nature of God. Don't let what you don't know about his plan corrupt what you do know about his nature. What, it's, what does it say about the author? Now, in light of what we know about the author, we can maybe not take up a cause to argue with him. Oh, little man. That's chapter six. Why do good things seem to happen to the wrong people? Chapter seven is why do bad things seem to happen to the wrong people too? Bad things seems to act like they, that happens to like good people a lot. So verse 7, 1, he says, a good name is better than fine perfume. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Those are two contrasting things, and they're both saying very similar things to our Chinese parable. Like, well, be careful what you name things. Sweet perfume. Sweet perfume is, it's a, it's a metaphor, it's a picture of something that's expensive, but festivities, joy. And he's saying this, a good name is better than that. Is see that smelly guy over there that hadn't showered in a week because of this blizzard? Yeah, right. Okay, that guy made a name for himself. The way he cared for his family, the way he sought after to how he could love his neighbors. That man, a good name is worth, and his, like, he's got an odor that's preceding him coming into the room, right? That's better than this sweet-smelling something that's not understanding the purpose in life. He says, uh, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Why? Put, think about it this way. What's, what's better, uh, when the race starts or when the race ends? Well, it's when the race ends. That's when you see the results of people's skills and their workouts, right? At the beginning of a race, everybody's lined up, and that's potential, their birth, right? That's potential. And you know what potential is? There's another word for potential. Nothing. Potential means nothing. Ask any recruiter. It means nothing. And so your death day is better than your birthday because then you get to see what a person made out of their life. You, here's, that's, that's part one of that. Part two is death is, or a house of mourning or a funeral, it is a much better teacher. Uh, a coffin is much better instructor than a crib. You can learn a lot from a coffin. That's what he's going to say here. He says, you'll grow wise if you go to a funeral home. Look at verse 2, chapter 7. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. It's better to go to the house of mourning because if you go to the house of mourning, you're going to learn something. You're going to learn a lot about life, maybe even the purpose of life. And Solomon's saying, 
trust me, okay? I invented great Gatsby parties, had them every weekend. It would, be, it would blow you. You couldn't imagine the sorts of festivities I involved myself in. And I can't remember one time where someone sat back and went, wow, I'm just a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. No one gets out of here alive, he says, and you can learn from a house of mourning. There's two valuable lessons you can learn without a funeral. He says, one is how to learn a life without regret. I have been to a lot of funerals, many funerals. The first funeral I ever was participating in was a junior in high school that was murdered in a drug exchange that didn't end well for him. And his casket was surrounded by about 10 to 12 of his peers, weeping, screaming bitterly. We couldn't take the casket out of the church because they wouldn't let it go. And so I looked at the, my, the I was working as a, a student in grad school, and I looked at the mentor that was running the event. I said, is this how all funerals go? What, what's happened? He said, that is regret. I mean, the first funeral I went to as an adult, and I saw what happens when you regret being a bully, when you regret saying harsh and ugly things to people, when you regret withholding affection and love. You can't get it back, and you want to scream into a pine box, but it won't hear you. Mm -mm. Funerals, they'll teach you a lot. I've been to funerals where people went on and on 35 minutes. They live for the trivial at the expense of the eternal. Don't tell me another story about how this guy loves classic motorcycles or he's really great at bowling. Can you please tell me something that he did that mattered? Nope. You learn. Second thing you learn at funerals, besides like how to not to live with regret, is you're next. When you go to funerals, I, most of the time, or maybe it's just me, but it's like, okay, yeah, I wonder if there's a reception afterwards. Are they going to have barbecue? Mm, do I have time for that? But then there's that one funeral where maybe you identify with the person a little too much and you realize, wait a minute, my number's almost up. Uh, Solomon's saying this, you want to grow wise? Here's what it looks like. Go to a funeral home. Buy yourself a casket. Put your name on it. Have an interview with death because death is going to say this, I'm coming after you. You're going to die. Live like that. Now, this sounds morbid, right? But it's not. It's actually a person that actually grasps what he's talking about here, what he says. Death is the destiny of all men. We should think about that. And it doesn't make you morbid. On the contrary, it adds depth to your soul. It adds depth to your relationships. It, it makes decisions easier for you about what you should care about and what you shouldn't. <laughs> Understanding death, you start living with purpose in life. Um, it's, it's campy, but there's, you know, you might have remember this, the, the movie, uh, What About Bob? right? You know, it's about this guy with all of these phobias and, and, and fears and compulsions, and he just can't even live a functional life. And at the end, his, his psychiatrist has just gotten crazy uh, annoyed with Bob and finally just like ties him to a tree and wraps uh, dynamite around him, and he's going to blow him up. 
And Bob is thinking, oh, wait, this is death therapy. You're trying to get me to realize my own death is imminent and I should live as though I were going to die. And it's a funny movie and all that kind of stuff. And, but here's what's it's interesting. Some of you have graduate uh, experience in counseling. It's based on truth values. Okay, if you, it, if you took graduate level courses in counseling, you probably studied existential psychotherapy. I did in my graduate school. And the classic, the tome, the Bible of existential psychotherapy text is a book called Existential Psychotherapy by Irvin Yalom. Now, when I read this in the 80s, I was like, that's, what about Bob? That's death therapy. Look what he says about people once they realize they're going to die soon. Here's, this is out of a textbook, so this could be really boring, but... It's supposed to. It's a textbook. The denial of death at any level is the denial of one's basic nature and begets increasingly persuasive, uh, pervasive restrictions of awareness and experience. The, uh, the integration of the idea of death actually saves us. It acts as a catalyst to plunge us into more authentic life modes and enhances our pleasure of living life. Once we integrate death into our life, it plunges us into a deeper experience. Confucius said it this way. We all have, to, we all live, we all have two lives. The second begins when we realize we have only one. Solomon is saying this. Go to the house of mourning. Come to the realization that you only have one life to live and watch what happens with your gratitude towards creation, towards your gifts from God. You realize everything that you have is being loaned to you by God and it, it reshapes your goals. It will rearrange who you have as friends. It'll change your prayer life. It, like, it, if you're in Christ, you don't, you don't fear death. And so all you, what death can bring is a lesson to you. And that's how to live. There's no fear in self-forgetfulness. Death therapy leads you to self-forgetfulness because you're going to die and be forgotten. Well, let's get to that today. Now I can live. I don't live with fear, phobias, compulsion, because none of that's going to matter much, not long from now. How do you live? How do you live? Ecclesiastes answers the question, how do you live when you look around and it doesn't make sense? It seems like the good things are going to the wrong people and the bad things are happening to the uh, right people. You know, the people that ought to be having a break. Here's what he says. Here's how to live. Watch this. Palms up. You live palms up. Because palms up is, is I surrender and I receive. It means I, I'm not going to fight this. I'm just going to take this. My lot. This is my lot. I get this. I'm not going to argue. It's already been set. It already has a name. It's in the can. I'm just going to play the cards I got dealt. And I'm going to do that to win. Look what he says in 713. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? There it is again. It has a name. We already heard that, right? You can't debate with many words. It becomes, it becomes even more meaningless. You can't straighten what God has already bent. What are you doing? So what can you do? This isn't fatalism. It's not, it's not fatalism because we have a responsibility uh, to, to, to worship God with our gifts. So if, if we see someone that's hungry, we can, if we can do something about that, we need to feed them. If we see someone that is, is destitute and it's not their fault and we can help them, we need to do that. We see injustice take place. Let's do whatever we have to do to stop that. 
We see disease. We do what we can to put that to, to death, right? Anyone enslaved, let's set them free. So it's not, it's not about fatalism like that. It's this. Play hard, as hard as you possibly can. No one gets out of this alive. You'll be dead and forgotten soon. So enjoy. Palms up. Enjoy. This is your life. Surrendered, accepting all that God has, right? You have, here's a good example. In your lot, uh, your parents were alcoholics, like angry alcoholics. Just, you spent the years fighting that, arguing that, trying to change that. How's that working? What if you were to just surrender and accept it? And I know, look, I, I, there's memories that you wish you wouldn't have. Uh, there's experiences and emotions that you suffer with. But that's your lot. And did you know this? That isolation and loneliness are some of the deepest human emotions. And if you weren't shaking your fists at what could have been, and what should have been, you could maybe reach a hand out because you can hear isolation and loneliness from children of adults that were alcoholics and you could help heal that wound. Maybe not all things that are bad are bad. Maybe it could be used for good. You see, it's, it's your lot, why not you know, there was a song in the, I think, late 60s, early 70s. It was, it was, que sera, sera. Here's the lyrics. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Now, that song was not a dirge. It was sung by one of the prettiest smiles in all of Hollywood, Doris Day. And she sang it happy because she had resolved and said, que sera, sera, whatever will be for me. The future's not ours to see. So, why not? Let's just enjoy this thing, right? Let's just surrender. So in the good times and bad times, palms up. Just accept it. Look at verse 14, 714. In the day of prosperity, be happy. Boom. But in the day of adversity, wait, stop, consider, reflect. God has made one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything about his future. You're never going to figure it out. So what does he say to do? Not all the bad is bad. Not all the good is good. If something bad happens, turn your hands up reflect, ponder the last week, in the last seven days, what, what did you do to make a good name for yourself? What did you do to seize that moment? All men and women, all men and women of character and nobility, of strength, the saints, you know, that we desire to be like, they all had very strange and unique paths. Every one of them had one thing in common. They all suffered because it is through suffering that you get character. Suffering doesn't cause character, but you can't have character without suffering. Malcolm Muggeridge, one of my favorite British writers, he was a journalist in the 20th century, very insightful, uh, a committed atheist and a communist until he started reporting on atheistic communism, and then he became a follower of Jesus Christ. He says this in reflection on his life, thinking back about the nature of pain and suffering and what it does. Contrary to what you might be expected, I look back on the experiences that at the time seemed especially 
uh, desolating and painful with particular, but I look at them now with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction, not through happiness. In other words, if it were possible to eliminate affliction in, from this earthly existence by means of some kind of drug or medical mumbo-jumbo, as Audius Huxley does in Brave New World, the result would not be that life would be delectable, but it would make it too banal and trivial to be even endured. And this, of course, is what the cross signifies. The cross, more than anything else, is what pulled me to Christ, that he too suffered you ever heard the saying, what does he or she know? They've never suffered. Sometimes only pain tells the truth. So the passage says this, when good times happen, you turn your palms up, you surrender, and you receive it. He says, enjoy it, ring it out, drink it in, seize the day. He says, laughter is worship. And he says, during hard times, this is a time to stop and ponder. You don't have to understand it, just receive it. Surrender, let it be. Let it be the thing that changes your life. Don't let what you don't know about God contaminate what you do know. And I know this, this is true, that he who did not, he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us, how will he not also with him generously give us what we need. Hmm? I know that to be true. Let me tell you this, my point of view. This is just me, my experience. I, I didn't want to even talk on this book until I was in my mid-50s because I wanted to make sure I understood it. And you have to be a certain age, I think, to grasp it. Now that I'm 60, I look back, it's truer now than ever before. If I could give a gift if I could give a gift that I have that some of you don't have, especially you younger, if you're somewhere 30s, especially 30s, I would give you my fatigue. I am tired a lot. And it has been a blessing in my life. If I could give you my fatigue, because when I was younger and I had a lot of energy, I could turn molehills into mountains. I fought over all things stupid. I didn't have the discernment to know what truly was interesting. I, I looked, I was so ambitious that I looked so far out into my future that I never lived in the present. I was not there. And now that I'm tired, all I can think about is the here and the now and the people that I get to enjoy. Oh, I wish you would be tired like me. All I have time for is that little red section in the middle, my lot. There is so much I don't care about now. I wish you wouldn't either. Solomon is saying, you know, the closer you get to that pine box, the more life's mysteries go without debate. Palms up, surrender all that control and need to know and just enjoy. Here's what I've learned in 60 years. I know this is true, and it sounds simple, but this is how you live, okay? You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
And all the other stuff will be added. That's it. God's honest truth. The sooner you get there, the happier life will be. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Why don't you, just sitting there at home or right here, why don't you turn your palms up and pray with me. Dear God, I, uh, I confess that I act like I, know, <laughs> like I know how to keep score. Like I know what good is good and what bad is bad and who ought to get each. And I confess that I'm just a future vase of dust. And, and, I've, and I've argued outside of my weight class and, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm missing the joy of the moment. Even if the moment is drama and difficulty, I'm missing those moments. Lord, you know, I, we, we exalt the saints, but we don't want to do what Peter went through. I, I acknowledge the chisels and anvils and hammers of adversity, sorrow and indignation are better teachers and have greater potential for change than prosperity and joy. So, Lord, I'd ask that you would help me know my lot, that I might enjoy my lot. I'll see you soon, but until then, I'd ask that you'd help me wring out every bit of this life that I can for your glory. Lord, I'd ask that I would have a good name. I would earn that good name by becoming like Christ in all of life. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Everybody said, amen.